And church, we come today to the final six chapters in this story. This is our 47th Sunday in this book. And today it's all getting wrapped up. And the reason we're taking the the last six chapters today in kind of one fell swoop is because they primarily, for the most part, repeat instructions we've already studied in detail. Uh, Mostly the instructions given to us in chapters 25 through 31. So if you'll remember God or or Yahweh, that personal name for the God of Israel, his covenant-keeping name, his self-existent name that he's revealed, uh, he has brought his people to Mount Sinai in the wilderness Uh, He has defeated their enemies in Egypt in an incredible fashion. And now he's entered into a covenant with them to be their God, to have them for his people. The covenant is the reason they've been delivered. The covenant is the reason that they've been brought out of bondage to an evil Pharaoh and now brought into bondage to a new and wonderful king to God himself, to the one who has created them, who has saved them, and who loves them. And over the past few chapters, to address the dilemma of how he, how this holy God can enter into covenant and dwell with sinful people, we've seen instructions given to Moses for the construction of a tabernacle, a tent where God will dwell with and meet with his people. This, this tent, if you'll remember, will be sort of a glimpse of the Garden of Eden. So the imagery in the tabernacle is reminiscent of the imagery of Eden, this place of fellowship with God, a place where God's people can know him through sacrifice and mercy. They can approach him now. They can worship him. That was chapters 25 through 31. But... Back in chapter 32, which we saw a few weeks ago, we saw how that whole plan was jeopardized. Jeopardized by the disobedience and the rebellion of Israel. So just weeks after the covenant commands had been given, those ten commandments at Mount Sinai, Israel had rejected God's good decree. And they had made a golden bull to worship in his place. And in the process of that sin, God had considered destroying them completely. But at the end of chapter 32 and into chapter 33, we saw Moses had stood in the gap and interceded for them. And how God had used Moses' prayers and intercession to show them the mercy he had planned to give them. And so after all this drama, we come this morning to chapters 35 and 40. And we see the completion of the tabernacle, the the grace and love of God poured out as his people build this dwelling place in their midst. So let's breeze over those chapters briefly. So chapter 35, uh, there we see contributions raised by Israel for the building project. And, And it's cool to see that they give more than enough. So after they had contributed all these gold Uh, items for building the golden bull. Now they are called to give gold and precious items for the building of the tabernacle, and they give over and above so much so that they need to be restrained. They need to have that sign put up that says, no more donations for today. Their generosity is too much. There we also see Bezalel and Aholiab and the rest of the skilled workers, and they're called to the task 
in chapter 36, we see the building of the tabernacle itself. In chapter 37 comes the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense. Again, all things that we've looked at uh, specifically in, in past weeks. In chapter 38, the bronze altar comes, the bronze basin for washing. The courtyard is constructed. Then in chapter 39, the priestly garments are created. They're designed, they're, they're made. And then at the end of chapter 39, the people who have been laboring over this bring the completed work to Moses. And Moses blesses them. And then in the passage, as he just read for us in chapter 40, he sets up the tabernacle. It's completed. And to put a bow on the entire book and the entire covenant process, the building, the covenant ratification, the sacrifices, the law, it all comes to a head. All this stuff that's been happening for 15 chapters comes to a head as the cloud representing God's presence descends on the tabernacle like it had descended on Sinai. And Moses stands back as the tent is filled with the glory of Yahweh. As it finally becomes what it was, it was meant to do, to become this mini Sinai, this portable sanctuary where Yahweh's throne will be transported with Israel as they go on to the promised land. The covenant God finally dwells with his people. All these painstaking details are repeated word for word almost again, one after another, to show in chapters 35 to 39 that God's will has been carried out to the letter. His commands have been obeyed. Almost a year has passed since the Exodus, since Israel actually left Egypt, and now finally the tabernacle is built and God's presence will indeed go on with his people into the wilderness to Canaan. This, this story has been lengthy. It's been covering people like Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron, nations of Egypt and Israel and Amalek. Ultimately, it's the story of Yahweh and his justice and his love and his power on display through the deliverance of his people. So, church, as we complete this incredible story today, let's finish by looking at three characteristics of Yahweh that we are reminded of, specifically, not only throughout the entire book of Exodus, which is true as well, but in this final section, in chapter 40 in particular. Each of these characteristics are things we've looked at before. But let's take one final glimpse of them before we go. First, God is faithful. Second, God is glorious. And third, God is present, faithful, glorious, present. So first, God is faithful. So just think about it. It's been 40 chapters, folks. 40 chapters of ups and downs, covenant making and covenant breaking, sin and judgment, mercy and salvation, rebellion and forgiveness. And now... Mere verses from the end. The entire point of the story is reached. God descends. 
He dwells with his people. It might seem like it's taken a long time, and that's because it has. But God, through it all, has been faithful every step of the way. Even when his people have not been. He has brought them out of slavery with a mighty hand. He has overcome their rebellion through his steadfast love. He has kept his promises. Through thick and thin, he has not wavered in his intention to bless, in his intention to provide sovereign care, in his abiding providence, his loving discipline. So it may seem like a long time to us before we reach this point. But God has kept his word to the end. God is faithful. You can't say this much better than Alec Mateer, the Irish theologian. Uh, This is a bit of a lengthy quote, but it's worth it. Mateer looks back at the entire book of Exodus since chapter 1, and this is what he says. The dark shadow of enslavement lay upon the people of God. The bitter cry of bereavement as their sons were snatched from them for the river. The blows of the taskmaster, a future without hope, and the relentless, uncaring policy of genocide. Israel was at that time a people under a cloud. But then he says, now at the end of the book, they are again a people under a cloud. This time the cloud of the Lord. The signal of his presence in glory, holiness, and grace. Between these two clouds, the sovereign Lord of the whole earth has routed all the power of the enemy, granted his people deliverance, brought them to himself by the blood of the Lamb, graced them with his directive law, and come in the fullness of his person to take up residence in their midst as their indwelling God. This, says this scholar, is the whole story of the book of Exodus. What a summary, right? Sounds so grand, so amazing, so phenomenal, so unbelievable. But Christian, do you realize that this is a summary of your life too? You too were under the cloud of sin. But through Jesus, you have been delivered from slavery to judgment and death. You have been brought out of the prison of your condemnation and made, believe it or not, the sons and daughters of God. God now indwells you, Christian, by his spirit, and he will hold you fast and dwell within you until you reach the promised land when you will see him face to face. The story of Exodus is the story of Israel, yes, but it's also the story of Jim. And Kevin, and Julianne, and Angela, all of us who are in Christ, this is your story. Christian, you're not reading here merely an ancient transcript, but you're reading your own biography. Rejoice. God is faithful to save. I wonder if, if you're one of the many Christians in fact, one of the all Christians who struggles with doubt. Who struggles with at times wondering whether you truly are one of God's people. Well, dear believer, united to Jesus, remember this morning that because God is faithful, not only to you, but to himself, 
he will hold you fast. The Apostle Paul writes about God's faithfulness in 1 Thessalonians, and this is the application he draws to the believer. He says, he's giving a benediction at the end of his letter, and he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That might give you some anxiety. I I hope I get there. I, I, I love Jesus, but I hope that I'm blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's not done. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Christian, you can persevere to the end because God is faithful. Here at Loudon Valley, we humbly and joyously believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. How true Christians trust in Jesus until they die. But as the late R.C. Sproul once said, an even better name for that doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is perhaps the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. We trust in God, yes, but all it takes is one day living with our flesh in this world with temptations, and we realize we cannot keep our hold on a faithful God perfectly. So ultimately, Christian who struggles with doubt You must find your assurance, not ultimately in your own faith, but in the faithful God who holds you. In the midst of your doubt, find your ultimate peace rooted deeply in the truth that your God is faithful, even when you are faithless. God is faithful. Secondly, God is glorious. So there in chapter 40, verse 34, God's glory descends on the tabernacle. It fills it as God makes his home among his people. God's presence is is full of glory here. It's it's heavy with his all-consuming holiness. One author calls God's glory the reality of his divine nature. And so all of that reality is, is now indwelling the tabernacle. And here we see that in incredible fashion, so in our daily lives, we might say things are glorious, like, like a mountain or a, a, a canyon or an ocean or a sunset. How much more glorious must be the creator of that mountain, the creator of that canyon, that ocean, that sunset? This is the God who makes us stand in awe. His holiness is, as chapter 24 called it, a devouring fire. His presence is this heavy beauty of glory. In church, as we've noted many times over the past few weeks, we may not see a cloud gathered here above us today in 2019. We may not see God's glory this way today, but we have seen his glory. We've seen it in the gospel of his son. So in Hebrews 1, we read that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus shows us the glory of God. and In the gospel, we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. He has shown God's glory in both his triumph and his suffering, in both his life and his death. And one day when he returns, he will come as the king of kings to bring judgment to his enemies and life to his people. 
So just like God's glory throughout Exodus was shown in both salvation and judgment, so at the last day, Jesus' glory will be revealed as he both saves his people and judges those who remain in opposition to him. If you want to see a, a vision of the returning triumphant Savior, go home and read Revelation 19 this afternoon. There's hardly a place in Scripture that shows Jesus in so much power and military might coming back to put all things right in salvation and judgment. Earlier, our brother Daryl read for us from the Gospel of Luke where we see the account of the transfiguration of Jesus. There's a lot of things here that are reminiscent of, of Exodus. You see a cloud descending and God's glory being shown. And it's shown in Jesus. It's shown in Christ. God's voice comes and says, this is my son. And it's interesting to see who's there, right? It's Moses. The man who in Exodus 33 and 34 had begged to see God's glory, but could only see it in part. He now sees it in an even greater way in the face of Christ. Luke writes, As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, that's also the word exodus, which Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses sees God's glory anew, and he sees it in Christ. He appears on the mountain and talks with Jesus about Jesus' exodus, his departure in death leading his people out of slavery, not merely to a wicked Pharaoh, but slavery to sin and death and hell and Satan forever. Again and again and again and again, Exodus lifts our chins from merely looking at the text in front of us and shows us Christ. Jesus is the main character of Exodus, the one that we're pointed to through these 40 chapters. The church God is shown to be glorious all throughout Exodus, but the revelation of God in Exodus is kind of a movie trailer for the main feature, for Jesus, the Son of God, who comes and brings God's glory down in salvation and judgment for God's people. Jesus, church, is our glorious Savior. He is the one through whom the first creation was made and the one through whom our recreation has been accomplished. He alone is the great glorious King. If you're here and you're not a Christian with us this morning, we're so grateful you're here. We hope you feel warmly welcomed. But we want you to realize, as we have, that Jesus never claimed to be merely a good teacher or a religious leader. He always claimed to be God. To be holy and glorious and deserving of worship, just like this God in Exodus chapter 40. Just like Jesus in Luke chapter 9. That each of us, in our sin, have refused to worship God as we ought 
And as a perfectly holy God, he rightly condemns us for our mutiny against him. We must die. If you don't like the sound of that, I get that. But then I hope that if you don't like the sound of that, then you realize that you can't consistently then believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Because that's who he is. That's who he says he is throughout Scripture. Either you will be judged by this Jesus and what he has said, or you will be saved by this Jesus and what he has said. And friend, the good news is that the the way of salvation is wide open for you still. Jesus came to die on the cross for any who would turn from sin and trust in him. So if you'll do that, he will be your savior forever. If you won't, he will judge you forever. Again, that may sound harsh and unfair, but it's not. Sin is harsh. Sin is evil, and God would actually be unfair not to punish it. Won't you turn to Jesus? Won't you turn to Jesus so God can punish him instead of you? Church, God is faithful. God is glorious. Finally, God is present. I think this is basically the main theme I've gotten from Exodus. So in our community group last time, we kind of went around and did a one word to describe what we've learned from Exodus, and they're all good words. My word was covenant, but I think present has a lot to do with that as well. The whole book of Exodus is God making a way to be present with his people. It's been the overarching theme of our study here. And the overarching theme of specifically the past few months since chapter 25. When we've talked about the plans for the tabernacle. And and now we see those plans carried out. God dwells with Israel. He descends to live with them. He is present with them. Dear church, for us, God is not only the transcendent Lord of the universe, but as his people, as his covenant people, he is our imminent father, our close friend. That truth should both give us an incredibly healthy fear and an incredibly real peace. We should fear Because we know that the holy eyes of God are upon us. And we should rest. Knowing that those holy eyes see the sacrifice of our Savior and are now pointed in our direction, not with consuming judgment, but never-ending grace. This presence of God in Exodus 40 points us ahead to Jesus, like we just saw at the Mount of Transfiguration. But as we close up this book, I want us to think specifically about how it points us ahead to heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. When God will dwell with us forever. When the world will finally and fully be how he designed it to be, this, this tent for his glory. In Revelation 21, we read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. 
and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Really here in the last five verses of Exodus, we see a glimpse of heaven. God coming to dwell with his people in his place. Christian, how much of your week is taken up thinking about your future? Are you looking forward to heaven? Exodus 40 ends in those last several verses, but even as it ends, it looks ahead. Do you see that? It talks about how this glory comes and resides with God's people, but then how it will go with them. How God's presence will guide Israel ahead forward onto Canaan. And church, Revelation 21 shows us the ultimate destination, the ultimate Canaan of God's people. The place where he will condescend to dwell and he will be present fully and forever. Are you looking forward to that? What, what might it look like for us to live as Christians who long for heaven? As we wrap up Exodus, let's, let's look forward with Israel to the promised land and see three things about hoping for that day. First, looking forward to heaven will put in perspective the pain of life. Looking forward to heaven will put in perspective the pain of life. Even though God has saved us and we have the very real presence of his spirit in us right now, even though we know some of the joy of our salvation, some of the peace of the cross, our lives are still really hard. We suffer. We grieve. We find it hard to wake up in the morning. This world and our fleshly desires constantly wage war against our hope. And and I think, myself included, so many Christians are distracted, perhaps even derailed when they find that out. Because somehow we believe that that pain is real, of course, but somehow it just should feel a little bit less real to us. Being Christian means being spiritual. So every time something bad happens, I should be able to have a smile on my face. No. Jesus hasn't promised that. Jesus has instead promised the exact opposite that we will face suffering and grief and disappointment and trial. But he's promised that all of that will be for our good and it will be meaningful. It will allow us to be sanctified and to grow more into the image of our Savior. So he has promised us not our best life now, but our best life yet to come. He has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment on the reality we will experience in the future this loving presence of God forever. So looking forward to heaven, Christian, must put in perspective the pain of life. You 
geometry, math people, or whatever you are. You think, think about like a, a dot, right? One place, the contained area. That's your life. Then you think about a ray, a ray that never ends. That's heaven. There's a geometric perspective shift for the Christian. Looking forward to heaven must set us free to risk discomfort for Christ's sake because we know this isn't the place where we will experience fullness of joy. It just simply isn't. Look at your life. Yes, there is joy. We, we talk about that a lot. I'm just, I'm just trying to be real. This place stinks sometimes. It's not where we're going to find culmination of our joy. That place is yet to come. So we can be okay with a life that's not quite perfect. With a house that's not quite the house of our dreams. Right? Because the perfect life is coming. And it's going to last forever. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Get ready, church. You're going, to get, you're going to be blown away when you get there. So with that perspective in mind, where can you, where can you have healthy risks for the glory of Christ now? Looking forward to heaven will put in perspective the pain of life. Second, looking forward to heaven, Christian, will compel us to be holy. Looking forward to heaven will compel us to be holy. Why? Because, believe it or not, in heaven, you're going to be holy. Perfectly holy. You're going to be glorified with Christ. That's your future. You, Christian, are going to dwell in an existence where you are fully in love with Jesus and fully hating of anything anti-God including your sin. Evil, suffering, will have no place there. Any sinful indulgence that you find joy in right now will not be there. So that means that preparing and looking ahead and anticipating that day will mean being more holy now. It will mean not indulging in sin. It will mean expecting that we will delight in heaven when we get there and kind of developing our taste buds now for that day. So Christian, in view of heaven, live like who you are and live, a, live like who you're going to be. Don't deaden your spiritual appetite with the sin of the world, but rejoice in the gifts of the world only insofar as they come from that glorious Christ who's coming back. Looking forward to heaven will compel us to holiness. And finally, church, looking forward to heaven will cause us to rejoice. This is kind of a compliment to what I talked about earlier, right? We can have joy in our sufferings, even if it doesn't mean a smile on our face. See, God in his glory came down in the tabernacle. God in his glory came down in Christ. And one day God in his glory will fill the new heavens and the new earth. And the song of our joy will never end. So we're in the wilderness right now. We're between deliverance and heaven. We will thirst. We will hunger. We will be attacked. All things that we saw Israel struggle with in Exodus. 
We are on this side of the promised land. But regardless of what the wilderness produces in our life, there will always be reason to rejoice because we always know the final chapter. This joy will not be flippant or surfacy, but deep and abiding and eternal. Joy that shines through weeping eyes. Joy that shines through doubting hearts. And looking forward to heaven will cause us to rejoice because we know how the story ends. But for now, church, as we finish up Exodus, let's forge ahead into the wilderness, knowing that the glory of God is with us and indwells us by his spirit. Knowing that the glory of God we see in Exodus 40 has come down and taken our sin on himself. We're going to be singing of the love of our God forever. Let's start now. But first, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this book that we've had the privilege of studying together over the past few, past year and a half or so. Lord, we pray that you would not help, you would help us not leave this book unchanged. You'd help us not to be the same after considering the truths of Exodus. Instead, help us to, to live every day with the mindset of pilgrims in the wilderness, indwelt by your Spirit, saved by your Son, and looking forward to your return. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you've given us. We pray for those in our, our church family who are struggling acutely this morning, whether with temptation or trial or doubt. Lord, we ask that the experiences of your people in Exodus would give them hope. And that all of us, Lord, would live as a people who are you are guiding to the new heavens and the new earth. Come quickly, we pray. Amen.